This podcast is a 3D audio production, so watch out as sounds may seem to come from beside you or behind you. For the best listening experience, please use headphones. Welcome to the land of exclusive bonus content, Orphan Black listeners. We are so glad you are here with us. It's because of support from subscribers like you that we are able to continue making amazing shows like this one. We are endlessly grateful and would love to hear from you. Connect with us on social media or reach out through our website at www.realm.fm. And for now, enjoy this killer roundtable discussion with the writers behind the series, E.C. Myers, Malka Older, and Helly Kennedy, along with a special guest host, Dana Pickley of Queer Media Matters. Calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy night 1920s. New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am thrilled to invite you to Rachel Uncensored, my podcast where I get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. From personal stories to hot-button issues, we cover it all. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so make sure you tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. Bonus, bonus, stay tuned at the end of this episode for a sneak peek at another show we think you'll like. A huge thank you to Realm for hosting this panel and to all of you who are tuning into it. I am your moderator, Dana Pickley. I'm the editor-in-chief of Queer Media Manager. Sorry, I just screwed up my own, uh, <laughs> my own site. Queer Media Matters. Thank you. And I'll be your moderator for today. Um, please welcome the writers of Orphan Black, the next chapter. We have Malka Older, Eugene Myers. Hi. Helly Kennedy. Hey there. And Madeline Ashby. Hello. All right, well, let's kick things off with a question for all of you. Orphan Black, beloved show. How did you decide to continue the story four years after the show had ended? <laughs> it's a good question. It wasn't, our, it wasn't my choice uh, to create, to, I, I'm, just, I'm just along for the You're ride. You're like, leave really, me yeah. out of this, right? I, mean, <laughs> I, think you know, choice, I, I never would have yeah. even dreamed that it would have been possible to continue the series. So I, I, mean, I, wasn't, I wasn't involved in... in how those pieces came together. I'm just glad that they asked me to, to participate. Yeah, exactly. I mean, when they came to me and said, would you like to write a pitch for an Orphan Black sequel? It was an immediate, yes, <laughs> of course I would. I love the show. Yeah, I kind of came on uh, in the beginning too with Malka after like, I I've worked on a few different uh, storylines in the Orphan Black universe. So early on, yeah, I remember them uh, calling me up and I was pretty excited to see what we could do to set something so far in the future of that universe and kind of continue the storylines. Uh, and you know what? The characters are so interesting. They're so layered. There's so much to play with and they're so funny that you feel like you can keep rolling with them and you can get a lot of material out of them. Like they're just fantastic characters. So yeah, it was pretty early on. I remember working with Malka a bit and us going over ideas that she was pitching and creating. And yeah, it was exciting to continue uh, my Orphan Black journey. Yeah, for me, it was just, you know, an almost basically an immediate yes. I think like I emailed them back within about two minutes, maybe <laughs> like, you know, um, and uh because it was also a platform that I hadn't worked with before. It was, it, you know, getting, knowing that the work would be read aloud presented this really unique challenge. You know, I've had uh, novels of mine adapted to audiobooks, but that's always sort of a lucky break. 
and and knowing that this was going to be designed specifically for an audio platform really presented its own sort of challenges and opportunities and then also when we found out that it that you know Tatiana Maslany was going to be reading it you know when an Emmy winner mm-hmm. is reading your work that's huge and it was you know that it you want to jump in with both feet yeah i thought i don't think i don't think we even knew that for sure until we were already like together working True. on it but um yeah i i remember uh they had reached out to me like i was i was invited to offer some pitches for what a potential series would be so I was, you know i sent one of those things in and then i didn't hear about it again until they were saying hey this is happening would you like to be a part of it and it was actually really bad timing for me because i was actually working on a novel on a really tight deadline I was working on another serial box like realm series and, but I couldn't say no. I was like, this is orphan black. I'm not going to get this opportunity again. I have to be a part of this. I will do whatever it takes to make sure that I can fit this in and, and, and do a good job. So. Well, I want to, I want to kind of attach onto what Madeline was saying. How is this process writing specifically for audio in mind different than your other projects and part kind of part two of this question Orphan Black was such a visual series. How were you able to keep that dynamic feeling while removing that actual visual element? Let me answer this by telling you a weird story about my youth. Uh, So when I was a child, um, before I knew how to type, I would uh, stay in my room alone and recite stories to myself. I was always making up stories and I was always doing the voices. To myself. And so I rehearsed stories that I was sort of, you know, working on, I guess you could say. And I I I had developed I had cultivated the skill of developing stories that way long before I ever wrote them down. And so the one came before the other. And so as a result, all of my work has always been really dialogue heavy. And I I was aware of that going into this. What I was not, what I was less aware of, was the way in which sort of ambient sound and sound that gets mentioned would be woven into the story. And also, I was less aware of how natural pauses in dialogue would play for the actor reciting them, for the actor reading them. So, for example, one of our challenges is that uh, we don't do a lot, we cannot do, or we have to do fewer sentence breaks purely because it's it's more difficult to to sort of edit together and for the actor performing them it's really hard to, for the actor to say clause a she said clause b and you know to break it down that way and i'm really guilty of constructing those sentences over and over <laughs> massively massively guilty and so it it also trained me out of some habits i would say it's i'm way more aware of how yeah. those things play across the board, no matter what I'm working on now. Yeah, I agree. I kind of totally learned from that because I come from film, TV, and -hmm. publishing and video games. And sometimes in video games, you have a lot of dialogue that is meant to be, it's open world that I write in. You have a lot of dialogue that's meant to be attached to a character, but you may not be looking at them. So you're sort of writing for people to either see or hear or see and hear something. So you have to kind of write to prepare for all of it. Um, And the film and TV, you have visuals and I'd written for print you didn't hear anything um but in this case that was kind of different and (laughs) this is going to be so lame but uh I was drawing from I used to listen to a lot of radio plays as a kid growing up I was that kid in high school was listening to the shadow knows right Mm -hmm. you know and and uh Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit when they did their kind of radio play uh, rendition of it in the UK. Uh, so I was drawing on that for a bit. And then just knowing all the characters, I, I leaned really heavily on their accents, the cadence of their voice, tried to really feel it out. And when I was writing, and I did this for all the other Orphan Black stuff I wrote as well, I, I do their accents. I actually like talk as them as I'm writing. And I pretend that there's an audio element that way. I look completely insane when I'm doing <laughs> it. I guess that was sort of my preparation was kind of just trying to follow the screenwriting I'd done, but delete that element in my mind that, uh, that we would see anything, just kind of try to do away with it. But yeah, I was doing, I was drawing on radio plays and stuff. I think there's also a really interesting angle to this on Orphan Black specifically, because 
in the show, so much of the the shock value and the surprises and the twists come in very visually where like she sees herself um, or we see a character that we know must be a different character, but they're dressed in a way. And that plays very differently when you're, when you're writing or reading it out, right? Than if you see it. Um, but on the other hand, we can do all sorts of things that they can't do visually. So like in the cold open to season one, we're following this character and we, you know, we describe her, <laughs> but it's not until she sees another clone and recognizes them that the audience knows that she is her, a clone herself, which would not be possible if it were videoed unless we were like very coyly avoiding her face the entire time. So there was a, a lot of thinking about those things, like what can we do to use the strengths of this media as opposed to, to the things that we, you know, we can't do because it's not television. Well... And equally, you know, we can have as many clones in the room as we want. <laughs> exactly. Can, That's true. That's true. <laughs> all sorts of stuff and not worry about how much the tech costs or how many takes there have to be or any of that. Yeah. No hair and makeup changes. No, no like, <laughs> oh, no, we're going to Kasima and it takes forever to do her hair and makeup. And yeah, we can just throw all the clones in at once. Well, you all did this very successfully in, uh, in the next chapter. So thank you. Thank you. We, we all know that Tatiana Maslany is an incredibly talented actor and played, uh, I think it was a million characters, uh, <laughs> at least a million characters in the original series. What was it like having her take on, in this medium and bringing that same passion from the original series to your work? I mean, it was just incredible. As, as we said before, you know, when we found out she was reading it, we were all just so thrilled and excited because... The, you know, her, I mean, even in the, the, the television, which, as I said, has a lot of visual in it, both from, I mean, the way she moves and the hair and makeup, and there's so much there in the visual, but she also does incredible voice work in the television. So, you know, we knew that that was going to be brought to bear on this as well. And yeah, it was just, it was, it was super exciting to have that piece of the show be embedded in what we were working on. I mean, I'm still just, psyched to hear her read my name at the beginning of the episode <laughs> and, uh, and you know the there's there's also that extra pressure i think uh, i mean i think we all we all felt the pressure to to do right by the series and by the fans but also knowing that she's reading our work is just you know an extra level of both um vindication or validation of what we're doing but also like angst over oh my gosh she's going to read my lines my dialogue and 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 then you know to get to hear it so it, it it's been pretty incredible I think it was awesome because I wanted to just try to throw accents at her that she had never done before. So I think in my episode, I threw Scottish her way. Yeah, and I was like, <laughs> you did it. <laughs> I want to see a Scottish clone. Um, and I think she spoke Portuguese in my episode too. So yeah, I was just, I, I thought it was really cool that we got the opportunity to build other characters that she could then flesh out. And knowing that she was going to bring um, which she brings to all the clones, which is this kind of interesting element where she kind of fills out parts of the character. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That was super exciting from, like, I was excited to see Vivi, who's a huge clone character that Malka created for uh, that season, um, to see how, how that would feel when we could hear her voice. And it was amazing, yeah, because she's so different. Even though she's played something like 13 clones on the show, <laughs> like major clones, not even the ones that died off randomly. Um, she brought something new and I heard a voice I'd never heard before in any of the other clones. So it was a new human being that felt distinct and, and different from the others. That was really cool. It was it, for me, like as a Cuban American, it was so exciting to write a Cuban American clone and give her a Cuban swear to say, and, and then to see the reactions from the listeners in Latin America when they heard Tatiana Maslany saying, come mierda, was amazing. <laughs> Well, gathering from what you're all talking about, you didn't know that Tatiana was initially going to be involved in the project and not in, like from the big get-go. At what point in the process did you find out, oh, hey, everyone, guess what? Uh, the Tatiana Maslany is going to be re, you know, reinstating this thousand roles that she has played for from Black. It was pretty far along. I mean, I think we had, we knew they were talking about it even, I mean, even then, I think we had started writing, or at least I, brainstorming. I, I was never believed she until. wouldn't do it. Mm. I had never believed she wouldn't do it. 
So I always wrote as though she was going to do it because I I just did not believe that the project would go forward without her because how do you bring back this story with this iconic figure? Yeah. And not have that happen. So it was, I just had faith the entire time, I guess. Yeah, I had some faith too. You know, I, I was really counting on her to do it. And uh, I, yeah, but I think like when we actually found out, we had outlined the whole season and we were drawing up episodes mm-hmm. and we were far along. And I just, yeah, like you, Madeline, I was like, yeah, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. But you never know the way things go, like in film and TV, it takes a while to nail down contracts sometimes. And, and yeah. you just got to have faith. I guess. Yeah. And I certainly can't imagine it without her at this point. Mm-hmm. You know? Like, I think, I think, you know, our work was good it, and it, and I hope it would have been successful even without her reading it. But I think that was the thing that really got the fans to embrace it. Um, the thing that really made it feel like it was a continuation of the show. Mm-hmm. Over the years, Orphan Black fans have really come to love that core group of Sestras, with Sarah, Kasima, Allison, and Helena. Uh, the next chapter introduces some of the significant new clones to the story, as we were just talking, like, like Vivi. What were some of the biggest challenges of introducing more clones? And what were some of your favorite parts of that? I, I got to write Vivi playing Kasima which was a ball and i got to also write sarah finding her out <laughs> which was also a ball and and so the the figuring out a way to do that that would that would bring out that multi-layered aspect to the performance was really 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 fun and how is that how is how this woman interacts like what are we learning about how this woman sees Kasima via her performance of Kasima? And and that I think was probably the one of the most fun moments for me working on the entire project, period. In the climate-ravaged world of 2072, the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects its fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. In a time when the world outside is unsafe, it's vital for Pura's existence that people rally behind the purpose of the city, and Demetria Lopez, head of the city's public relations, tirelessly promotes its idyllic image. But when she stumbles on a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, that's kind of like a tat specialty, characters <laughs> playing other characters on a show that's not real. Like, she's just layering the fiction there. Um, yeah, that, that, that was really cool. I remember hearing that and going, huh, yeah, I can kind of hear that. That's not legit Kasima. You know, and it's it's neat to hear that. I think for me, because we were playing with a new clone uh, and this clone was very different from all the other ones in terms of like her profession. I don't know if I want to give away spoilers in case anyone hasn't listened to season one. Um, but she's, you know, she's got a very sort of. I mean, it's been out for like a year. I think we can okay. I think we could go a little further. 
all right, she, she works for the CIA. Right? She's a narc. <laughs> She's, She's a narc. Yeah, exactly. So uh, I think for me, it was just like, okay, this is a really interesting, different character. But uh, what is her emotional arc that's distinctive from all the other ones? And what, how has she grappled with uh, realizing that she's a clone? Because we're, we're doing that story again. And we were showing her journey of becoming, you know, self-aware. And that was a challenge for me, just trying to know where I was in the arc for my episode and what it meant to her on her journey of self-discovery. Uh, and how she reacted to all the other clones. Because I remember us talking about that a lot when we were going through outlining the season was like, okay, so what is her relationship when she realizes that these sisters are you know, genetically related to her and how is she going to interact with them? And how is this different than anything before in five seasons of television? And then there were comic books and other things that had come out. How can we differentiate this journey? And yeah, it was kind of, it seems like it's endless in the end. Like you see you see that this journey can play out in so many different ways with different women, you know, realizing that that to me was the biggest challenge was wrapping my mind around another clone. I think. I think that's, I mean, that's one, one of the things that is so powerful about the series initially is that, you know, especially in this world where we tend to see very, very scant um, media impressions of women and they tend to gravitate to certain types. And here we have this show where, we have all of these different women um, going through something really powerful in, and, and just, you know, kind of just showing all the different ways that people can, can react to something this intense. And so adding another clone to that was, was really exciting. Um, and I also want to say that the other thing that was really fun to me, for me on this one was also revisiting some of the clones, well, um, some of the characters that were children in the initial show. So Charlotte was a really interesting clone for me to write because yes, we met her before, but she was, she was really young. She had a, she had a personality, but you know, it was, we didn't, we didn't see a lot of it. And so looking at how that would be different and looking at how these characters, Charlotte and Kira also, um, you know, had grown up was, was a really interesting part of the writing for me. Yeah. It was, it was really great to get to flesh out Kira and kind of give her her own story that wasn't dependent on, how she was involved with the clones necessarily. Like she had her own interests and, and relationships and, you know, skills and drive. And she was able to kind of do her own thing and then, you know, tie that into the narrative, um, you know, and, and I, I mostly write young adult fiction. So I, I was happy to get to write some of her scenes and, you know, draw, draw on my you know expertise uh, with that and just kind of think about like, what is, what is this like for her and for Charlotte? Like I also really liked writing uh, Charlotte scenes as well. So it was, it was really cool to kind of get into their heads and give them more of their own story. That was all part of this like larger story. As a orphan black fan, I think seeing the parallels between Sarah's discovery of the clones and Vivi's discovery of the clones that, which both have very different outcomes and very different reactions, but I loved being able to have that parallel that was a harken back to the beginning. Uh, I think that that really connected, I'm sure, a lot of fans. It, it connected me, definitely. All right, actually, um, I'm going to ask uh, Eugene, since we were just talking about Kira. So Kira is an important part of this puzzle, and I love how that she's found this kindred spirit in Cosima, and that she's even able to explore her own queerness, her own sexuality with her aunt's support. And she's one of the characters from the original that obviously had the most, most growth from the series into this next chapter, both literally and figuratively. What is the key to telling Kira's story? That's a really good question. <laughs> um, I think for her, it was really, it was a matter of thinking about, uh, I mean, there was a lot, she was sort of a, a, a really important figure in the original series. Um, and then it's sort of like, I think, I think it sort of faded away a little bit. Like she didn't really get, it's like, it just never, it never led to anything. I think like we didn't understand like her importance. And, and I, I found it was really interesting to get to write uh, a character like her, who is just controlled by the forces around her. You know, that, that's, that's true of, of many, many teenagers. Uh, but in her case in particular, her entire childhood was really like she was she was a, a force that was protected and moved and and she wasn't told things, but she was also really important, you know, in her in herself. So this is really about her finding her own identity 
and that's actually like I think that's really important for the series as a whole. Like, who am I? Um, you know, whether I am a clone or clone adjacent. Um, you know, what what is my role here? Like, what do I do? And and her pushing against um, her her mom and sort of the 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 rules and the expectations of the other clones and finding her place. Um, I think that was it. I think it was like figuring out like you know what matters to her and for her her like her genetic identity and and sort of wanting to feel like you know how how can i contribute like how can i do something with this like this and and pushing against secrets it's like this is a big secret that can have help a lot of people that can be really important and she needed to kind of explore that so it's it's a lot of like wrestling with the 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 macrocosm of of themes in the show but in her story on on a micro scale, I think. Yeah, sorry, it's true. It's kind of Kira's story at the end of the show wasn't fully, I guess, fleshed out or tied up uh, like some of the other plot lines for the other characters. And so when we were doing this, my personal struggle was just kind of trying to figure out where she had emotionally landed, like Eugene was saying. And I think I was really clinging to Sarah because in the TV writing room, I know that when they were writing the show, Sarah was considered the heart of the show. That's what they built it all off of. And so that's, she had a lot of content. She had done a lot. And a lot of what she had done was connected to protecting her daughter um, and trying to figure a way out of this kind of insane situation she ended up in from realizing she was a clone uh, to protect her family and move forward. So I was clinging to Sarah a lot and going back to the show and looking at what Sarah had done and why she had done it and tried to figure out, well, okay, let's go eight years down the line and imagine a teenage Kira fighting her mom on this, that, and whatever, and try to uh, understand how Kira would have, you know, how her arc would have formed based on Sarah's behavior, because ultimately the woman raising her would have been key in where she had ended up eight years later. So I was constantly thinking about Sarah, honestly, whenever I had to indulge in Kira in a story, on a plot line. I really highly suggest that Realm make some clone-adjacent T-shirts <laughs> for this uh, next... I think, Eugene, that was perfect. I, <laughs> I would absolutely wear a clone-adjacent shirt. Um, no, it's, that's super interesting. Uh, I think I really loved... Kira's arc in this series and I it was wonderful to see what you all took from that character that had been like you said been built but not really explored into a much more fully fleshed person and um, she was one of my favorite parts of the next chapter uh, another part uh, one of my favorite parts of the next chapter uh, speaking of hearts as you were saying Holly one of the big hearts or at least the romantic focus for fans for Orphan Black has always been the relationship between Delphine and Cosima and having them happily married and still making crazy science together was a really <laughs> big treat for Kofi and Shippers. How did you as writers come to this path with these two? I mean, yes. It you can't not happen. go there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't think it was but ever see, up I said, for no, See, Eugene, you say that, but I have been chronicling like queer pop culture for over a decade, mm -hmm. and many times they don't go there. And you did go there, and I appreciate that. Yes. Uh, yes. We just, we needed to go. There. I mean, that for that reason, too. I think it was, it was pretty important to all of us. Yeah. I don't recall it ever being up for debate. I don't think it was ever a question of whether or not they would be together or or if they would be married or not or anything like that. I, Helly and I both live in Toronto and I, I swear to God, we had more conversations about where their address yes. was. Yes, yes. <laughs> like neighborhood. That, like which house. neighborhood they would live oh, in. Oh yeah, they would have to would find they a live, cool neighborhood. Would they right? live in it? There was, I think we did have a conversation about whether or not they would have, whether or not they would live in one of Toronto's sort of queerer neighborhoods. Yeah. Um, or why? And if so, and if not, why not? And and stuff like that. I think we had we had conversations about that. Um, what I, kind of house they wanted to what have? Kind of house they would they're have. renovating an old Victorian. Yes. Like, yeah. In uh, yeah. off of Trinity Bellwoods, like yeah. they we gave them a very sweet address. Uh, yeah. We gave them. <laughs> 
a pretty sweet property. Uh, we, <laughs> we gave them everything. Yeah. We really I, gave I them like, like, the, the and they deserve it. Toronto they experience. deserve it all. They do. They, yeah, yeah they because do. They, no, because they're incredibly deserving. And and I got to tell. They're iconic. I got to open a chapter describing uh, them buying underwear. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, right. Which I we that. had to, find, which I bought scenes. tooth and nail <laughs> to keep. A, a scene that like a thousand, maybe 1300 words just on buying lingerie in Paris. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I fought tooth and nail to keep it. And I but appreciate that. It's about that so much about more you. than just underwear. <laughs> <laughs> And and we had, of course we had to like we had to look at the relationship and where it is now. I mean, as as much as we gave them a lot of nice things, right? But we also yeah. had to think about like what are the strains and stressors and how mm. how is this working out? And and I think it's actually like one of the big drivers of the season is sort of the tension between Kasima hiding herself, and that means also hiding a lot of the work that she's done in her mm-hmm. life on her, in her, you know, her metier and her career. And yeah. Delphine, you know, being very much the opposite, like being very, a very photogenic person, a person who's used to leading and, and being in front and making speeches and buying really schmancy underwear, you know, and, and Kasima being not that and, and trying to figure this out, like how, how can she, um, do her own thing while worried about this huge secret and also, you know, relating with her wife who is in a very similar area and, and really a superstar. So that was a really interesting thing to delve into as we were, mm-hmm. as we were writing their relationship. Lone yeah. Club. Oh, so, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Add, Helly. Go ahead. No, no. Okay. Sorry. Uh, yeah, no, I agree with that. I think like for me, they had a relationship that had been through so much throughout five seasons of TV. They've been torn apart, thrown together, almost dead, shot in the stomach, just insane stuff that I think they had to work through so many things that, yeah, it felt like shortchanging them and not giving them a life together that had this kind of cohesive element. It just felt wrong. And I think I imagined that after everything they'd been through and they stuck through that and worked through that, how could they not have had a strong marriage or a union? So yeah, to me, it just made sense. And I wanted to see them together. I honestly, I wanted to just indulge in their life, right? (laughs) So yeah, I don't know. It made sense. I think there's this perception, uh, and I'm looking at you, Joe Quesada, um, that that once a couple gets together in a narrative property, they are boring. Mm. And anyone who's been married, or like me who's been married twice, knows this to not be true. Um, I think that, you know, you know, ideally marriage is like wine. It gets better as it ages, right? But it also gains in depth and gains in nuance and, and so on. And I think like the challenge is mining drama from those nuances, from those tiny moments. But that, that is, you know, it's no excuse to, to split a couple up or to or to say oh okay well we have to you know shake we have to shake Can the you dice say that and, say that louder for the people in the back yeah <laughs> so, like it's, it's <laughs> it is... really is no excuse it's it's really it's really a cop out to me it's like i you can because now yeah. you can tell now you can tell uh when it's like oh no and now we have to pull them apart because yeah. we suspect it'll get boring the one time i've seen it work where you pull them apart because something uh might happen is farscape probably where uh where there were two of the same person and she had to choose between which one of them she wanted which is also a clone story when you think about it uh but the that's the only time i've like really really seen it work and uh and so we we knew i think we all operated from the from the logic that there is plenty of drama to be found in long-term relationships and, oh yeah, and as somebody Rook- who's been married for almost a decade, I can. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And 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 that idea that there isn't that like uh, the marriage is the end of the play and it's a happy ending is a very patriarchal idea. Mm. Oh yeah. Exactly. Yes. And it's very yeah. like cishet romantic and uh, just and 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 also the idea that there's nothing interesting that happens afterwards. Extremely patriarchal and and, and male. Um, yeah. And so, you know, I think for all of us, it was really important to explore those things that have not been shown as much. And and that's another reason why it was actually super great to come to this story and these characters nine years later or eight Mm -hmm. years later. 
and be able to think about these things that, and, and I mean, I love the ending of the original series. Oh, I think yeah. it's a fabulous ending and they pull things together and they just show the dynamics of the group and it gives us, I mean, it's a wonderful way to end it and they did such a good job with that, which is the other reason I want to start it like way later because I didn't want to stomp on that. Uh, but coming back to, to beloved characters that much longer, as well as new characters who are who are going through new things like it really lets you look at some of that stuff that's often just shuffled off to the side of the media that we consume and that's always interesting oh i love this and this and this was a great conversation about this <laughs> I, I was gonna add that is how allison and donnie wind up in a sex club in downtown toronto yeah <laughs> another marriage another interesting marriage actually. now that's a spoiler alert <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> And how much time we spent trying to find a name for a sex club that was not already <laughs> that was not already yeah. in use. Yeah, yeah, I we, forgot. yeah. a yeah. lot of. Oh goodness! All right, so Cologne Club, dedicated bunch, re uh, really supported the show even before it became a critical darling. Were you all fans of Orphan Black before this opportunity? And how was it for you to create something that these fans would gravitate to? Uh, I was a total fan. Um, I, I think I got into it when it was still in the first season. Um, and, and yeah, I was just hooked from like, the, I mean, it's, it's also when I, when I took this job and I knew I was going to be writing the sequel, I went back and watched that pilot and like, man, the, the, the concision of the storytelling and the amount that they get into that pilot is incredible um like really really great craft there uh, but but yeah total fan which made it really really exciting i think um you know i didn't want to worry too much about the fans because you just you can't get too hooked tied it up with what people will think reading it except to the sense that like being a huge fan myself you know i think as as, as someone said before we all really wanted to do the show right um and, and, you know, we didn't know for sure if the fans would come along. And so when we, you know, when it came out and we started seeing people responding with the hashtag, the clone club hashtag, it was so great to see people really, really happy um, and to have them feel like it really was a continuation of the show that they love so much. I mean, that was, the reactions were just amazing. It was, it was so satisfying and, and, and just so great to see people saying stuff like that. Yeah. I think for me, because yeah, I'm a fan of the show. I was a fan of the show before I was writing their comic books. You know, I, I love the show. How could you not? There's so many interesting characters to play with. Uh, the concept's so cool. Uh, but I always, even writing comic book series, every time I would sit down to like, you know, I pitch something and then write it and then coming to write this, I always think of the fans because being a fan, I have this, I'm, I have a scathing eye on what I'm reading or, or you know, looking at when I'm, I'm going through plotting out new plot but also I don't want to let the fans down like I just you know I'm just always trying to think of like they're incredibly smart the fans they have a very dark sense of humor which I love um and they're just you know um they're they're really uh they're they're a group that is like if they they don't like something they're going to be vocal about it and it, it's helpful to know you know what how people felt about things but I always think about like what have we not seen before that could be really a, a, an interesting ride for the fans to go on another trip, right? Uh, right, and they expect trips from the Orphan Black universe. Oh yeah, go straight down that rabbit hole, right? Um, so yeah, for me, I, I, I'm always kind of like writing with a bit of, it sounds lame, but fear, right? Because <laughs> I'm like, oh, it's got to be good. It's got to be good. Um, but it, it's, it's good for me because it, it keeps me like pushing myself to try and you know, go beyond where, where I think the scene is going to land when I go back again and I look at it and I think from a fan perspective. Um, yeah, but I'm always a little bit scared when I'm writing it. Yeah, I was, a, I was, a, I was watching it. I think I, had, I still had cable. Like I, I, I used to subscribe to cable. Um, and, and I was watching the first season on BBC America. And then when I got rid of cable, I had to, I had to like buy every season like for streaming every time, it, whenever it was available. Um, so I've been watching it since, since I think the end of the first season and then I caught up and, and then I've been current since then. Um, I, I agree, there's like some of that fear, um, but for me, it's not so much like, oh, we can't do that because the fans are gonna hate this because we're fans too. It's more like yeah. if, this, if the story requires this, we have to make it so that the fans will buy it and that yes. it will feel right. 
to the characters. And then the, the flip side of that is having those moments where you're writing something, you're like, the fans are going to love this. You know, like those scenes that we're writing because we're so excited to see this and, and, to, and to put it on the page. And then we can't wait to see what their reactions are going to be when they, they get to that. Um, and I think that, you know, we're, we're working on, on season two now. And there's going to be, a, there's a bunch of things that I can't wait to see what, what the fans are going to make of it. Yeah, I think the passion from the fans is super gratifying when they respond, you know, because they're so vocal and they really love the show. So you feel like, oh, yeah, there's a lot of like fulfillment in writing for this, uh, this universe as a writer, for me anyway. Mm-hmm. I had um, be- long before this job, a uh, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, I got uh, a master's degree that involved fan studies. And so I had been like reading all the Henry Jenkins I could get my hands on and so on. And so it was like really interesting. I had been involved in fan communities. I had, I had sort of chronicled that and then I went and got a foresight degree after that. And it was weird how those meshed. But um, I, I ended up sort of relying on a lot of the sort of the, wi- the wisdom from those previous experiences, I guess. And, uh, and it gave me sort of a different sense of responsibility. I think there was a def- there was definitely a, a sense of responsibility of like, it, this isn't just about you. And this isn't also th- even, it's not even just about the team, you know, that we had a, we all have a responsibility to each other in the writer's room. We all have to pass the baton effectively in sharing the narrative. That's one responsibility, but there is this other larger uh, responsibility to the story that because it's it's also carried all these other people along with it. I think that's an amazing thing to say as somebody who's chronicled fandom for a really long time. That's that level of respect that you all have and what Madeline just expressed isn't always given to fandom, and um, I think that that's something that fans can really appreciate and fans who haven't caught up with uh, the next chapter will maybe even spur more people to, to check this out, this audio series out. It's, I think it's so well-written. It's so interesting. It's so fun, but also knowing that all of you care so much and are fans yourselves. I think that that just is the uh, cherry on top of the fandom Sunday. (laughs) Yeah. And the, and the studio cares a lot too. You know, we oh sure yeah we, with, we get notes from them and and we work with them we collaborate like uh, so you know you sort of have fandom as like the high higher authority but then there's a studio who like they're really they protect this and and they want to make sure that it's it's true to the series as well like this is their baby you know before we got to play around with it so um, there's a lot of uh, making sure that everyone is 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 happy with like what what we're putting out there it's always great when people just love the thing that they're making right. Uh, all right, so it wouldn't be Orphan Black without Felix. How did the plan to have Jordan Gavaris join in the last episode come from? Um, the plan for it. So, I don't know, Michael, do you want to take this one? I was surprised. I actually didn't, I didn't know about it until it, was, until it was done. And I was like, what? <laughs> I mean, we, we all love the idea. Like, I think actually, Heli, it was you who, who got in touch with him, right? Yeah, I'm friends with Jordan Gavaris, and uh, so he always wants to play Felix again. You know, he has been mourning the loss of Felix for a long time <laughs> since the show has ended. Uh, and so I knew that he was eager to do it. Um, and we wanted to use Felix throughout the season, um, and we did use him. But uh, I think it came, I think this decision came partway through crafting the season or even writing episodes we were far into like having things recorded and so we got him on board sort of towards the end of the recordings and doing all the drafts um and uh i was really just excited to have him do the voice again and play because he's so good at the accent and his character is just like i think felix is one of my faves my personal faves um and so having him on board he was kind of just him being really excited about joining us joining again to play him and us you know having having worked him into the plot and making him a key because you can't tell the orphan black story kind of without felix it just doesn't work um if if i if there was no felix for me it would feel like there was a huge hole well he's it. sort of he's sort of the stand-in for all of us isn't he kind of watching all of this craziness happen around him 
Yeah, he's kind of a, like the checks and balances in a way because, you know, he's the one who's getting dragged along. He's not a clone. He's sure, sure he's supportive of his sister and all the Sestras. Um, but ultimately, he's someone who is an outsider who has just become enmeshed in their lives. Um, and, you know, he's very opinionated and, and he's, he's a really interesting character to have in that position, in that group dynamic. Um, and he just, you know, yeah, he's, he's part of Clone Club in a way like he gives a different perspective on everything. You know, he's not a clone. He comes in from another angle. Um, and so, yeah, having him there and then writing, I think I wrote the, the tag sort of scene at the end. Uh, it was really fun to just set him up and, and know that if we go to season two, we have Felix a little bit more uh, entrenched in, in the storyline. Just for me, I don't know. I love, I, I would love to see him to come back to, like, I want, I want him to play that character somewhere. I don't know where he'd fit outside of the Orphan Black universe. Like, there's no crossover I can think of that he could play in. But yeah, it was nice to see Jordan reprise that role. He could get a spinoff sitcom. I'd watch that. I would watch that. Oh, yeah. Totally. Sure. And Jordan, I'm sure, would play that. I would <laughs> love for that. I, I am still clinging the idea, to the idea of like a, time travel well you know in the past set in the past spinoff with s because mm. oh and yes now we're all sad thanks Wonka. <laughs> <laughs> way to bring it down i i'm not sad i'm angry i want <laughs> i feel you i feel you all right orphan black the next chapter part two coming to the realm universe very soon. What can you tell us? What Sestra secrets are there? You can tell me, I promise I won't tell anyone else except the <laughs> thousand of people that will listen to this. I can tell you that right now, as we were talking, I was typing on the cold open for season two. So you weren't paying attention to this panel is what you're saying, Malka. And I'm feeling a little hurt about that. <laughs> uh, what I meant to say was that while I was on this panel, my clone was typing. The <laughs> yes. Um, sure, but, sure, sure. No, actually, this panel gave me some fresh ideas, so I wanted to get them down. Uh, but yeah, we are working on it literally right now. And it's going to Literally, be. like at this exact literally, moment. See how that goes? Yep. It's open on my desktop. Okay, but you're all, now you're all tight-lipped. Very anything. Tight-lipped. No, nothing. You're not going to give me anything. There will uh, probably be some clones. Maybe. Maybe. I, I think we should turn this around, actually. I think we should turn this around. What is it that you would like to see? Uh, everything. <laughs> Just more of it. Uh, That's what we're going for. Everything but more of it. Yeah. No, I yeah. agree. I agree. I want to see more Felix. Okay. Um, that is definitely something I would love to see because it was such a tease to have, have him at the end there. Um, I mean, I honestly, I trust the hell out of you guys. This was Aww, such a well-written, such a fun adventure in the Orphan Black universe. I really do trust you with this story. So I'm pretty much just excited to see what you all come up with. Uh, that's, that's awesome to hear, really. That's, that's really yeah, awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Well, where can people find you on social media if you want to be found on social media to kind of just support you and and uh and talk with you in the interwebs where can they find you how about we start with you eugene um i'm all over the internet i spend way too much time on twitter ec myers ecmyers uh, that's probably the best place to find me what about you madeline uh, I also spend too much uh, time on Twitter. Uh, I'm just at Madeline Ashby. That's Alpha Sierra Hotel Bravo Yellow. And um, I also <laughs> MadelineAshby.com, but that's getting refurbished in the summer. So don't go there yet. Don't, don't go there yet. <laughs> I mean, you could, but it'll look better later is my point. <laughs> what about you, Helly? Uh, you can find me on Twitter sometimes, but I'm on Instagram more. Uh, at Helly Kennedy, H-E-L-I-K-E-N-N-E-D-Y. Uh, yeah, you can find me at the same handle for both uh, sites. I'm lurking and, around. And Malka, when you're not, um, you know, typing during my panel, <laughs> whatever, <laughs> can we... <laughs> I'm, I'm, just, I'm just messing with you. Where can people find you? I'm, I'm almost always, uh, and on social media wise, I'm almost always on Twitter and I'm usually multitasking while I'm there. So I'm probably typing something else while I'm tweeting to you. Uh, and I'm there at M underscore older. I'm also on Instagram, uh, as at infomocracy, but I'm almost, I almost never use it. Um, and yeah, I'm usually on Twitter, just like going through all the different orphan black gifts. 
and trying to figure out which one is most appropriate for whatever I'm saying at that moment. You and me both. I also um, just really appreciate that none of us mentioned Facebook. That was great. Yeah. Good for <laughs> us. That's, that is well, not the best place to find that's me. That's gross. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. Yeah. I but Dana, to... how awesome will it be when you're reading the cold open to season two to be like, Malcolm is writing that while I was oh. talking to her. I'm, you know, I'm hella impressed by the fact I had no idea that this was happening. <laughs> like complete focus, like no, I'm multitasker supreme over here. Or actually the clone. I don't know. Or either one. I'll take either. I'm really excited about season two, you all. I'm, uh, I see, I'm from the, I live in the South now and I really stopped myself from saying y'all right there. <laughs> you all. Uh, so Don't fight everyone it. supports. It's just going to happen. Let it happen. And if you know, if you didn't hear already, Cereal Box has actually changed their name. They are now Realm. So be sure to support Realm and keep an eye on announcements about when you can catch Orphan Black, the next chapter, part two. And um, thanks all for this wonderful chat. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank great. you. My name is Dana Pickley. I was your moderator today. You can find me at Dana Pickley. That's two C's, one L on Instagram and Twitter. And I'll see you uh See you at Cosima and Delphine's really cool vintage house in uh, Toronto. <laughs>again it's me the voice from the beginning of the episode i promised you a sneak peek didn't i here you go for years i've been trying to get my mom to talk about her past this study might reveal things i've always wanted to know about her about my dad about me the hope is that you and your mother have similar enough brains for the memories to transfer smoothly as cassie might have mentioned she selected a series of memories from when she was pregnant with you that she wants to pass on. I want answers about my mother's past, yes. But I can't help worrying that I won't like what I find. After all, it's not like I don't have ghosts of my own. A memory, please. Maybe this is what she's been running from all this time. The terrible thing that happened to her. Someone tried to kill her. One way or another, I'm getting answers, even if I have to break my brain to do it. Realm Presents Memory Lane, starring Emily Wuzeller, Leanne Marie Dobbs, and Elliot Schiff. If you like what you hear, please follow and share this podcast with your friends. Realm is your portal to another world. Listen away. This bonus episode was brought to you by Realm. Our guests today were E.C. Myers, Malka Older, and Helly Kennedy. And our host was Dana Pickley of Queer Media Matters. The episode was edited by Amanda Rose Smith. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics, and sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot-button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.